Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and I need to make sure that y'all can hear me. Steve, can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Okay, good. I think I turned down my volume a little bit too low. So anyway, my guest today is Stephen J. Manning, and we're talking about life is not a dress rehearsal. Now, Steve is a friend of mine. He is also a $47 billion man who is a professional provocateur. We have had some absolutely fascinating conversations that have me wandering around and going, what the heck did we just talk about or beating my head against the wall because I forgot to ask something important. This is what friends do. They make you think, right? So about Stephen, some people collect stamps, memorabilia, music, dolls, zippo lighters, bottle caps, stamps, whatever you can think of, happy meal toys, bad habits. I've got those. But Stephen collects people and stories. And he says he leads a preposterously fulfilling life. And that tends to happen to people who will try and fail to read everything in print and online, talk to anybody about anything, anywhere, anytime, and then try to live all of that. So he says that life is not a dress rehearsal, and I'm going to ask him about that. It's an important part of his story. And a life without passion is a life not worth living. And these are his philosophies, and they are always present on his imaginary teleprompter. Now, Stephen, this is important, so listen up. He is credited with the origination of prominent creative and empirical concepts, targeting database concepts, media strategies, promotional concepts, incentive devices, channels, and decision-making predictive techniques that are all widely used in the marketing world today. He is also one of the pioneers of advertising on the Internet, where he has been active since the introduction of commercial applications in the medium. And I think I mentioned earlier, he has generated billions, with a B, of dollars in revenues during his business life. Stephen, good morning. Welcome to your partner in success. It's lovely to chat with you again. Good morning, Denise. Thank you for inviting me, and what an amazing way to start my day, any day. As is every day when you and I sit by and chat for a while. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. As I said earlier, we have had some fascinating conversations. I mean, one or two of them have run in the three-hour range, and I was scribbling down. You should see my little stack of index cards, because when I'm listening to somebody, I'm always taking notes. And I have an entire stack of cards that I still have to go through and, and try to figure out what the heck we were talking about and what it is that I want to bring forward, because there were so many like, oh, my God, moments where I just had to write something down. So, listen, I wanted to talk with you. I've got your book, and we're going to talk about this. But the, the title is uh, – you tell people what the title is because I'll start laughing. The title is Pins, Whores, and Patrons of Virtue. And as where, I have, just where did that just come green light from? me, I'll talk about it today. 
go ahead because when when I got this book, when I heard about it and you sent it to me and landed on my doorstep, I ran to the front door and went, okay, I've got to read this. And I have a galley copy and it's not quite ready for, for publication, but where did this title come from? Where did this book come from? Well, I tell you, I will tell you where the title came from uh, because, as you said, the title is kind of is enticing. And to be clear, if I put the book on a table where I'm at, people stop by and say, what is that? And, of course, the graphics, as poor as they might be, match that. Uh, it, it's not – Pims and Whores is not entitled to – not intended to be, you know, salacious or provocative. It actually is – well, by definition, is pejorative as it relates to people. But I will tell you a story, uh, and your audience I know by now appreciates – what an amazing storyteller you are. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and flattered that you appreciate some of my stories. Hell, you've been listening to me for hours and hours on occasion. Uh, where does Pim's and Horse come from? <clears throat> Back in the day, I think I probably had as much hair as you, do, you have now. I knew a woman. Uh, her name was Kara Cake Ginsburg. Now, why Kara Cake? Uh, the woman had the reddest hair I had ever seen. How red was it, you know, when she would walk across the street in midtown Manhattan against the light or in the middle of a block? Cars would stop. They were thinking her bobbing head was a flashing red light. Carrot Cake, Claire was her real name, was a major media broker and a relevant business relation for me. In fact, to some extent, she was a mentor to me. One day I worked at the, oh, well, you know what? To ask, to ask that tough woman, how she could do business with a particular client. One of the absolute most awful, corrupt people in our industry, the direct response industry. Without hesitation, I mean, and I can't mimic her high-pitched, all-New-York tone, she said, we're all pimps and whores, booby. All pimps and whores. It's the money, honey. Well, I challenged that because, you know, I said some of us are not that. Rather kind of virtuous. She said, show me the one of those and hung up on me. So, I picked up on that early on. I said, we all put people in buckets. For me, it's pimps, whores, and patients of virtue. Pimps and whores are pejorative, although not intended to be salacious. Now, virtuous people, uh, you and I spent a fair bit of hours on virtue, virtuous people, and so on. It is very hard to be virtuous today, however you want to define it. Uh, I think I define virtue or virtuous living as you live by unyielding morality. Uh, that also defies some definition. And then never be situationally, situationally ethical. Never bent with circumstances, you know, needs. There's all manner of pressure from every aspect of life causing you to bend. If you don't bend, you will break. Now, uh, to some of the core in that whole topic, my father uh, was one of the few people I encountered in my life. Wrote much about that and him and my book and elsewhere. You know, I try to be virtuous, and how spectacularly do I really fail? It is really hard, hard work of being virtuous. So I like to think that some of us work hard and become like patrons, you know? And so I thought in my little computation, the nine patrons of virtue to every virtuous person. See, the, the pieces of pin source and pictures of virtue all tied back into, you know, all about people and how I characterize and pinch holes and pictures of virtue. I hope that answers your question. 
It does, and I really hope people, when it's when this book is out on the shelves, I hope people will grab it and understand what this is all about. And you spoke about your dad. I really would like for you, if you don't mind, to talk about your parents a bit because they are integral to who you are and why you do what you do. Uh, glad to. Of course, it does occur to me that our history, yours and mine, suggests that ours is not exactly long enough for you, you and I. No. That, by the <laughs> way, is a terrific We have more talking to do. <laughs> we have a lot more chatting. <laughs> <laughs> I can see them uh, Well, we, we, we have uh, two, three hundred hours to go. But let me, let me. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'll try to, I'll try to briefly give you some background about me, and tie that to my father and my mother, who are equally responsible for whatever heck I am today. I was born and raised in communist Romania. Uh, now, for most Westerners, particularly Americans, the whole notion of a communist country is incomprehensibly complex, and it is, and, and, and it's not understood. You know, it, it boils down to kind of like, you know, cliche television shows, um, but uh, my parents, now, I, I was raised by amazing parents, and they, it, my mom and dad were really polar opposites in many ways, but they both contributed mightily to plant all the seeds to my ultimate precepts of life, and also my pillars for success, mind you. My father. Now, that was a that was a was a rock, a rock of rocks. He was a tough guy, He's really tough, and he was unfailingly generous and kind of spirit. He was a born rescuer. He survived the purge of the Second World War, and then he survived communist Romania for uh, some very good reasons. Well, when you're charged with feeding 25 million people, uh, you take some liberties with expressing views, but then. I also watched that regime torture my father. Uh, he was brilliant. He was bleeding edge mind and intellect, you know? And he did live by his unyielded morality. It was never situationally ethical. And he paid a real price for that. Again, I saw uh, the chief engineer who fed 25 million people. I saw him several times after two, three weeks of torture sessions for the government because he was an outspoken critic of the communist regime. Now, I have to share this with you because you and I are friends. The man was a big man. He was a big guy. He was really not particularly attractive. And frankly, he did not exude a ton of charm, but that he was a righteous intellectual snob also. Now, that makes for an interesting combination. Now, all that does not explain, never explain to me. I still don't get it. Why? Because, you know, I knew this man really intimately in every way. Why would all quality women around just adore this man? Might have been his intellect. I don't know. Certainly was not that he was Gucci Valentino, come back to life, you know. And he was not an early predecessor of Brad Pitt. That made me a little bit of bogey. Uh, I wrote much about my father in my book. Uh, there are some great stories that uh, I hope that everybody reads because they relate to not just incredible men, but pieces of history uh, that have been memorialized, frankly, in a couple of movies since, but it is, it is wonderful. Now, to his life partner of all those decades, till the end of, the end of his life, astounding that my mom and dad lived together all those years, but credit to my mother. She was that tolerant and genuinely loved and respected this man. By contrast to my father, 
she was really the epitome of class and grace and intelligence and subtlety. You know, I will boast about this to you, Denise. She was a beautiful woman every way, inside and out. And as it relates to your question, an amazing teacher, all so much that mattered to this young boy. And whatever I am as a man today, I owe to her. And then later to my wife. Now, that woman knew what she was doing when I was a boy, but she raised me on classical music. And that is just a cruel thing to do to a, to a young boy. I mean, really, really. <laughs> no. Opera. I love opera. I mean, I mean, well, you know, Janice, when that woman dragged me to a concert and operas once a week, she would bribe me with food, so I wasn't carrying on as a kid. And then later, as I got a little older, I realized that there was more fun things to the opera. Count bald heads in the orchestra. And then later, oh, yes, all those fine opera singers singing their hearts out. I don't think I heard a note, but I certainly watched them all. And then, of course, she dragged me to tennis court. I was five five years old. Well, you know, I might have become a a touring pro later about that. And then all those languages. Who, Who at a young age wants to learn German in addition to French and Russian back in the old days? We all grew up bilingual, Hungarian and Romanian. And by the way, uh, maybe you can answer this some other time. All our language teachers were nuns. Now, that's cool, but where the heck did they all have bad breath? Ah, another story. And then, and rulers. they all have well. rulers. And then, does not oh, come indeed. without a ruler. Right across your knuckles. Across right. your knuckles and the back of the head. My mother was devious in one way. At 13, she insisted I had to get dancing lessons. I was a kid. Ah, it, it took me years to figure that out. She knew what she was doing. Where else could a kid that young, a young boy, be that close to grown ladies who are not his mother? You know, I think without getting slapped all the time. Right? She knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing. Now, uh, if you want more, the pr- it really does. I do want more, and I'm glad you brought that up, because there's a story that you wrote on your blog about your mom when she and your dad were out and about, I think on the dance floor, and mm-hmm. she came across a woman. I'm not going to tell the story because I'll start crying. Talk about your mom and this lady. It's an important part of your history. Well, uh, my parents were both Holocaust survivors. Uh my father is one of the unique people. This gives you another little snapshot into the man. He's one of the very few people who escaped the German labor camp and then spent the rest of the war uh, fighting uh, bad people from tree couch and forests and then ultimately joined his military outfit and became commander of occupied territories for the Czechs and the Russians. Uh, my mother uh, survived Auschwitz. Uh, interestingly enough, she and a sister and a brother all did. Her sister essentially survived because my mother had what it took to sneak out in the middle of the night uh, and dumpster dive where the guards were for things like potato peels, uh, those being highly caloric. She brought them back to her sister and a couple other very sick women to eat so they would survive. Uh, now, I grew up in a little city where 90% of the Jews never came back from the camps. Small city, very, very few Jews. 
Uh, I grew up being beaten up because of the Jewish boy, and that was post-war Romania. So I grew up with the Holocaust, and it persisted in our minds forever growing up. Uh, we saw the pictures. We read the statistics from the time we were very little. We heard stories. The least stories told were by my mother. She was very subtle about it, but I became aware very early on that when it was windy out, my mother didn't sleep. It was the image burned into her mind and psyche of the wind howling to the barracks in Auschwitz. Now, so I grew up with that. Uh, go forward 20 years from my childhood. Uh, we were penniless refugees in L.A. And there was an outfit in L.A. called Shelters for Israel. This was created by a handful of Hungarian Holocaust survivors in 1947, I think, where they would put together their pennies in a jar, hoping someday they'll do good. By the way, Shelters for Israel today has built dozens and dozens of, of major projects for uh, uh, old people, sick people, children, and so on. The only charity ever to spend 100% of their money on, 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 on their good, good deeds. Every year, one time, this charity has this get-together. The women all wear ball gowns. They go up, they go to the big ballroom, dance away, congratulate each other, themselves. It's a festival occasion. Well, we were in this country for, for minutes, it seems. We get invited. My mother, father, and I, my mother borrows a gown. And that was the moment, 1965, November 6th, where the Holocaust for the first time crystallized for me. And that is kind of what I try to do when I try to explain it to people who don't get it. Well, it's incomprehensible. It's, 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 a, it's a most grotesque display of inhumanity of people to people. My mother, in the middle of this affair with the band and all the pretty people, all of a sudden I become aware that my mother and another woman standing in the middle of the dance floor staring at each other. And, you know, you know it, 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 it makes an impact. People kind of look. And at some point, the, uh, uh, the band stops playing. At that silent, there's two women standing in the middle of the dance floor staring at each other. And then they approach each other and, and give each other this massive hug for two minutes. Oh, two minutes is a lifetime in a big room with hundreds of people and that quiet. And then they separate from each other. And they stand there touching each other's faces, you know. It's like, is this real? And that lasts another couple of minutes, and then they part company without a word. And then the music starts, that's it starts. On the way home, I asked my mother, what, what was that about? And she said, you know, that woman was in, in a bunk below mine in Auschwitz for six months. I said, whoa. And then, and you have nothing to say. And then she asked my dad to pull over, and then she explained it to me. She said, you know, uh, we shared an experience in magnitude that just eclipses everything else. I said, you could ask questions. I mean, I have a thousand. Where have you been? You have family. You know, did you win a Nobel Prize? Whatever. I said, you don't understand. The experience we shared eclipses everything else. There's nothing that could have happened to her or me in our lifetimes that will rival that in relevance. 
And then she said, you know, you need to know that there is no will greater than to survive and go on if the spirit is willing. And uh, I am one of those. She said, I am living again. And to be clear, your father, your sister, and you are my life again. Uh, long story, that's how I try to explain uh, uh, the, the, the incomprehensible Holocaust. But then I write about the 20 others that were massive and incredible, including one that's ongoing today, as you and I chat. And we can talk about that some other time. But I hope that I answered your question. I'm sorry it's had too long. No, you didn't take too long, and I was actually kind of mopping my eyes while you were talking. And I remember sending you a note saying, I understand why they didn't speak. Their hearts were in their throats. Words were not needed. They knew exactly who they were and what they had been through. And thank God it's it's you. You know, words were not you don't, words probably were, were not possible, it would be my thinking. You know, Denise, I will not pay you a compliment, not because you invited me on your show and because I like you so much, but there are very, very few people that you and I know that will have the reaction you have entirely. We live in a world where very few people dig below that little surface. Uh, They seek not just understanding, they seek emotion. What does that mean to me? You and I have had this discussion. I eliminate people from my little life don't get, don't get upset, excited, motivated by things around us that are happening in the world. Then I, hey, I get perturbed by a lot of things I see or read, whether that's in Somalia or somewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa or Dumont in Iowa. I get upset. I get excited. I get all of that. And then I get people in my life who say, well, you know, it is what it is. It's got nothing to do with me. And besides, what can I do about it? And when I hear that, Next words out of my mouth is kindly lose my phone number. I don't see any point in talking to you. We don't relate. So when you wrote me that note, those few words write chapters about you. Oh, I now I'm speechless, and you know that that doesn't. <laughs> no, 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 stop, stop. It doesn't. For happen. all you listeners, Denise just said she's speechless. Ah. Uh, Really? <laughs> In what life thought? Are you not? Are you speechless? Well, yeah, kind of. It, that you've. Re- I love your writing. I've. We've had this discussion. I will read just about anything you put out there. And recently, you wrote a, an article that re- references me and my very dearest friend Jim Tunney. Now, Jim Tunney. And it's called Two Degrees of Separation. Jim Tunney is known as the Dean of NFL Referees. I think he's 92, possibly going to be 93. I'll have to go look it up. But he's, you know, he's been around the NFL. He was in the NFL for 60 years. He's one of the best-known referees ever. And you wrote this lovely article about how you met him, which I also, well, you met him through me. No, you didn't. You you reconnected with him through me, but it was a fascinating article. So let's talk about that a bit. Not because it's about me, because I'm referenced very, very briefly, but this wonderful story that goes back to when you were in school, barely spoke English, and you deliberately, I'm going to give away a little bit of a teaser, you deliberately failed an IQ test, which I didn't know could happen. 
So let's talk about that because in, in many ways it's a really telling story about his compassion and his discipline and his understanding and how you responded to it over life. Well, you know, uh, I know you do and uh, perhaps many of your listeners relate to a great play and it was a great movie called Eight Degrees of Separation. Uh, the idea being if you scratch deep enough, every one of us is related. Just go down eight levels, we'll find it. Uh, you mentioned to me in our chat your friend Jim Tunney, and you're close and you think the world of this man, and you and hey, his, his life speaks to what he is, a big man, I mean, in many ways, in every way, and how close you are and you communicate all the time. And I said, really? I said, so that would be the same Jim Tunney that was the uh, all-time best-known NFL referee. Yep, same guy. And I said to myself, going back in time, that man has to be well in his 90s. And the story I, I wrote and told you about, you'll find it in my blog. It's called Two Degrees of Separation. Go back five decades, mind you, five. You told me about Tony in 2000 and I think last couple of days of December last year. Called that five days. So we were penniless refugees in LA, living in a, in a two ninety two dollar ninety five cent a day hooker motel downtown LA. I spoke. Let me visit. I knew maybe forty five words in English. None of those were multisyllabic, and many were not socially acceptable, okay? Uh, one of an aunt, uh, I think she was an aunt, grabbed me one day and said, you must go to school. So she drags me to this high school, uh, and I said, well, how do I get in? I don't speak English. And she said, you can't go to the remedial school. You will die there. So she takes me to school, and we had a game. The game was... She's going to speak for me because I'm so shy. Well, you and I know that's not exactly true. She was going to talk, and I was going to do a lot of nodding. Now, there we are at Fairfax High School in Los Angeles. And my aunt's telling people I'm a really bright kid, and she tells them how old I am, and I should, no, I did, no, no, no. And I told her, mm, tell them I'm older. So she did. And they said, well, what grade was she in? And I quickly decided that skipping the year or two was a good idea. Hey, I was going to flunk out anyway. Why waste a couple of years? So I get enrolled into this high school, not being able to go beyond, hey, hi, how are you? Now, as fate would have it, days later, they administer the IQ tests. Now, it was interesting because I didn't understand what they were talking about. I couldn't read the instructions. I sure as heck didn't understand any questions. And you remember those big forms with the thousands of little boxes you filled in with your little black pencil? So I'm staring at that. And I'm saying, okay, I got to fill out boxes. So I went in and filled out a lot, of, oh, a lot of boxes. And I created what looked like a really slick, uh, you know, those cake doilies that our parents used to have? Yeah. It looked like lattice work. But I thought it was slick, you know, kind of symmetrical, great patterns. I handed it in. Now. About a month and a half later, when the results were sent back to the school, I got summoned to the principal's office. And I was greeted by two people. 
this tall, good-looking man in the dark suit, our principal, and a vice and assistant principal. Now, uh, the principal said the following words. I did, I understood it later when somebody explained it to me because I couldn't talk to him. I said, hello, how you doing? And he said, I just want to see what that looked like. That's in my high school that scored a 69 on the IQ test. That's why I met Jim Tunney, your friend Jim Tunney. He was the principal. And he, he was a principal here. at Fairfax High School. He was. He was, By the way, was an educator. He was. And he didn't throw me out of his high school. Uh, I pretty much figured that he was just too blown away that anybody without his six nine could walk and talk and kind of say hello. And that's what started my absolutely disingenuous career in advertising. You know, I know Tony. What an amazing man he was. By then, of course, he was a referee. He was my high school principal. For a year and a half, I suffered the indignity of being in high school. And that's my two degrees of separation story in Jim Tunney. And, you know, the thing is, he read you. I was talking with him about it. He didn't remember the, the actual event, but he did send me a note and said, I'm always so proud to see how my students turned out. But the thing with Jim Tunney, you know, being on on – and he's a speaker. He was the head of NSA, National Speaker Association. He, you know, he's won the Cabot Award. He reads people really, really well. And one of the conversations that we had about you in that event, even though he had no genuine remembrance of it, he said, you know, there's no doubt in my mind I was able to look at this kid and see that he was standing up straight. He had intelligence in his face. He just didn't speak English. He understood I, 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 by the way, uh, as I, I, I hope that you send my gratitude to the man because oh, yeah. he could have just said, oh, get him out of here, send him off to some remedial in this school, and maybe three years down the line, he can come back to be what? A failed young adult? And you know what? It's credit to people like him look at you and say, you know what? He will figure it out. By the way, my father, uh, and my mother spent an awful lot of time on my sister. They felt, being a girl, whatever challenges that inherent in that, she needed their attention. And I mind you, uh, when we started out in this country, they had nothing. They had less than nothing. Heck, you know, in, in, in a church with church mice, we would have been borrowers, you know. And one of the things that I, reg- I, I really resented for years and then later on, I learned to appreciate was when my mom looked at my dad one day when I was grousing about, hey, how can you spend all the time on her and not on me? And are you going to ask me how I'm paying for my school or food? And she subtly, as she was given to doing, she looked at him and said, um, uh, he will figure it out. And that might be one of the great life lessons. I mean, you know, you've heard the cliches, you know, uh, uh, the mother reinvention necessity. Hey, when you got to eat, you figure it out. When you wake up early in the morning thinking, i got to do something to make lunch money, you figure it out. I wasn't going to get it from my parents because I was never going to ask. They didn't have it. Although, back to my father, he was a world-class scientist. He, you know, in a terrible world of communist Romania, uh, he had a Land Rover with a driver. We had 
the only private phone in the city I grew up in. There was a DC-3 that ferried him around. Of course, that doesn't mean they didn't beat him and torture him after that a couple times a year just to keep him in line. But anyway, back to, uh, back to people like Tony. He could have thrown me out, and he did not. So I am so glad that you at least indirectly introduced me to Jim Tunney. I look forward to talking to the man sometime, and it is, trust me, a privilege for him to read what I write, as it is for you to read what I write. You have options. Have if you choose to read what I write, hey, it's a privilege for me. Oh, I, I read just about everything that I've come across recently. You're a brilliant writer, and I've told you that before, and I'm not real good at blowing smoke. I tend to be a little bit too abrupt with my words, so if I tell you that. Really? I mean really? Yeah, really. I, remember I told you in the very first conversation, I'm not known for tact or diplomacy. I hope you can live with that, and you do, so we're, we get along just fine. Well, I will let you into one of the keys to that. Uh, you and I will ch- chat about, oh, the man on the moon, about uh, everything around around us, well, particularly people and things and all of that. that th- and I'll just sit back on my, at my desk with my feet up. And it's, it's a, what a joy. Oh, and then there's sometimes when I go to the closet and get out all my football gear, you know, my helmet and my pads and all my other gear. I say, okay, and he's just going to tell me something I'm not going to like. And by the way, does that not make for a great hour too? It does. <laughs> it does. You know, I'm, I just don't have time or energy to – sugarcoat things. If I've got it to say and you're willing to hear it and you have something to say and I'm willing to hear it, that's a good conversation. If neither of us can do that, well, hang up. Got to go now. And I do that a lot, by the way. So let's let's go back because you know, you're talking about you can kind of um, credit Jim Tunney with your marketing life. How in the world? I mean, you did market yourself out of trouble there. You marketed yourself into a much better life. But you have created, I mean, I, you know, I went to your website and just went, holy crap. And I think I shared this with you. If I didn't, I shared it with, with Devin Blaine, who is another friend of ours. And I remember saying, why is this guy even talking to me? Look at the people that he works with. I mean, I just went into, I'm not worthy. I got over it very quickly. But, you know, for a brief moment there. I was like, why in the heck is this guy talking to me? Why does he want to be on my show? We finally worked that out. But you have created so many concepts and strategies. And, I mean, you're known as the $47 billion, I'm impressed, billion-dollar man. Let's talk about that. How did you go from communist Romania to L.A., which I wouldn't live there, to be honest, and uh-huh. to be where you are now, seriously, I would not live there. Well, you know, we end up living where often we get stuck. Um, I got stuck here and for a couple of good reasons in my life and then my family and, uh, and my, my amazing wife who is less likely to go live in sub-Saharan Africa or in, in a tiny village in Italy than I, you know, uh, I, how, do you, how do you get to peddling stuff, you know, which is what we do. We do it all the time. Uh, we do it in every way. Uh, and 
you do it, I do it. Sometimes we sell when we wake up in the morning, sell to ourselves. We shut ourselves out of bed uh, to go about, about business and so on. You know, I, in terms of all the, all the business I have done, and I'll be glad to tell you about my first great job, which might have been the best job I have ever had, uh, and for a couple different reasons. Uh, and maybe I should start there. Uh, the best job I ever had in my life is cleaning rat cages at the research laboratories at Cedars. Cedars is a massive enterprise, hospital enterprise in LA. Cedars uh, Exactly. Okay. And I was a kid. I was 17, maybe. And I was scratching uh, lunch money, hustling the showbiz crowd on tennis courts. I was sorry. I was that good. Of course, you know, uh, the older I get, the better I used to be. But I was good. I was destined to become a touring pro, but life and all of that uh, interfered. And I got this job cleaning rat cages. Now, why, why did I do that? Well, for two good reasons. First of all, it paid 24 cents an hour more than anything else I could ever get. And then secondly, it was great for weight management. You can't keep food <laughs> down working doing that. You know, it's just what it is. I, I'm and, sorry, that's, but I shouldn't that, laugh, but I just had a vision, a visual, and I don't think I'm going to be eating lunch today, just so you know. <laughs> you know, in those beautiful hallways, shiny, and those beautiful rooms, all shiny, uh, when you get past the second set of double doors, uh, you discovered that God made trash cans for a very good reason. It wasn't for trash. It was for us poor people who were working there. Uh, Two things you learn cleaning rat cages. Uh, One of them is you absolutely learn uh, the value of honest work. You just do. Uh, And it becomes a pillar of your philosophies in life. It becomes a pillar for your success. And then you learn that uh, there is no work as long as it's honest, as long as it's not debauched in some way, not immoral, more. That is not something you say yes to when you have to, you need to. I went past that as I grew to when you want to and you have and you can. That's why the job cleaning rat cages is a great deal, a great thing. Uh, I have sold brain food. I have sold canned beef in Siberia for the winter. Uh, I've sold M42 tanks. Uh, I've sold swimming pools in uh, Oregon and Washington. I've sold Toyotas when those were blowing up on the freeways in L.A. Hmm. You know, those people never call me when things are good. They call me, then something goes bad. There's something wrong crisis with it, management. and I take the call. Yeah, you know? crisis management. Uh, I have sold m- more collectibles of dubious or no value than anybody you know. I sold phony Marlboros made with yaktong in Egypt in the Soviet Union. I sold door-to-door cosmetics in Watts, South Central LA, weeks after the, after the terrible riots. 
You know, and that's a story that I will write one day. Mm, it's about seed opportunity. Hey, I'll tell you now. My friend Joe at the time, who was you know, one of those kids, you know, and as an adult also, who could sell yellow pages to people who did their own businesses. I mean, he was just a natural. One day he said, we need to sell cosmetics in South Central LA. I said, are you nuts? We, no, 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 no. He said, Steve, one, uh, there's always a need, no matter how bad it is, cosmetics and two, we have no competition. So sure enough, Joe and I went and sold a lot of cosmetics in the most blighted areas in the city, and we were welcomed astoundingly. Us two boys were welcomed with open arms, and all the people opened the doors, a life lesson. And, you know, so oh, the question, and, and, and it, it, fundamentally, is how do you get to sell that much stuff? Now, that would be one of my pillars of success. And if you want me to it, it, tell you in, in two minutes or less what those are, I will. Uh, yes, you know. please do. And I'm scribbling. You should. Right. I've got my little stack of cards. Oh, don't scribble. I'll write this up and send it all to you because Perfect. I will remember every word of it. You make me do that, you know. Uh, I think in my, in my little life, there are basically three pillars of success is what I look at. One of them is, you know, everybody in advertising and marketing and some, some brains and philosophers, it's all much smarter than me, debate what the most important word in the English language is. is it, people say, oh, no, in advertising, it's free. And, and the, the life scientists, actually, I don't know what that means, but I like saying that, uh, they think no. And then I say the most important language for me in my development as a person, as certainly as a business person, is the word yes. Yes is the most important word there is. Actually, it's the only option for those of us who seek success and are willing to take the steps and risk to achieve that. See, it is yes, people. Before you have courageously most reasons to say no. It is yes, people who know that if you are afraid of wolves, let's not be wandering into the forest. Because the forest of business is inhabited by all manner of wolves. Now, yes, people forge ahead into that forest when they see opportunities. But they see opportunities they can quantify as the potential. Man, that is a big deal, a big idea. Uh, and they can qualify the downside liabilities. You know, it's a big idea, but there's 19 reasons why that's just not that good an idea. And as the yes people put on their big girl or big boy skirts and pants and walk into the trees uh, toward that ray of light, they see and begin to believe in what they see. And that is a pillar of success as far as I'm concerned. Uh, most people don't do that. That also ties into, uh, you know, some, it, into some leadership ideas, you know, about being leaders, being followers, uh, you know, getting out. I can talk about that as well. I mean, it's interesting. I can relate your story to life having to do with people and the forest. If you want to, if you want to take the time, I will do that. Uh, I can just go back to it when you want to. That next word I mean, it's a story about a client I had who was uh, raised $2 billion, 
created an incubator company, 50 different businesses, and I was asked to consult on like five of them and how amazing that really is where you have, you know, uh, 90% of people working in this enterprise were Harvard MBAs. That's all they hired. And there were a few people that came from Sorbonne, for example. Why? Because the founder's girlfriend was from Sorbonne. So she brought her one couple friends. And it's fantastic when you sit in a room with 11 MBAs in a, what they believe is a failing enterprise and the boss. The boss happens to be a guy who kind of got by at the University of Rhode Island on a tennis scholarship. I mean, he was a brown shoe in that big room full of tuxedos. And by the way, the bright people in the room had 19 reasons why not to do what I told them, what I said we should do, except the tennis guy who said, eh, sounds good to me. Let's do that. That's some guy who says yes is the only option. The next word that people, you know, like is no. Well, you know, you can say no. It's just a cop-out. Uh, cop out. And then, of course, free. Well, as far as I'm concerned, free is just, you know, it's like a clue. It's just cheap. The second pillar of this for me is never consider failure an option. It's brainless to concede to It is so much easier to fail than to succeed. And then here's a, here's a, a, a bitter thing to swallow, but it's true. You need to understand that all successful people fail at things. Often, something remarkably, repeatedly, but what they all have in common is that their failures are never because of lack of effort or convictions. Rather, something just conceptually out of their grasp. Didn't see it, couldn't learn it, never mind. Wake up in the morning, go right ahead. Of course, you look at the, and again, I mean, in my view, there are three options in life. You can lead, you can follow, or get out. Get out, what exactly is the point of that? It's mindless to concede defeat even before starting anything, and it's much easier to fail than to succeed. Then there's follow. Just get in the flow of things, be ordinary. You want to be obscure, knock yourself out. Otherwise, don't be ordinary. And then there's lead. Well, there are many ways to lead in life and business. The most elegant, I think, Denise, is be a thought leader. To influence people what they think, and even more importantly, how they think. You know, that is what you, Denise, do. Every time you speak into your microphone or pound your keyboard, now how, how cool is that? I mean, it's just the, the holy grail. Then the, the, last, the last but not last thing here is homework. That's not the last thing, but it's, you know, there is no substitute for wisdom on the firing line. You want to do the homework? Well, you can't do it all. Do more. Now, from my perspective, hey, I'm a shameless researcher. I will call the Pope and ask a theological question, which I have. You have done that. For another right. conversation. <laughs> yeah. but, when you told me that, I just went, you, oh, my God. <laughs> I laughed. But I well, you know, know what? You know what? Uh, and by the way, I did do that. And I did, amazingly, did get to speak to the Holy Father. Now, uh, perhaps if he's still alive, and he's not. If he were still alive, he'd still be laughing at the dude that called him at 5 in the morning and wanted to chat. You know, it's like, but you know what? <laughs> you know, uh, if you're a shameless researcher, I am. 
you figure out quickly that most people are willing and eager to share their knowledge and help you. And then last but not least, you've got to outwork and outthink everybody, or at least outwork them. You know, outthink everybody? Oh, really? Uh, rarely, if ever possible, there's just a lot of brilliant people out there. A lot of people are thinking about the same thing you are, the same time you are, but they have the wherewithal to do something about it. Outworking everybody? Well, that is possible. Not only is it possible, it's something you have to do. As my dad said, you know, you kind of get up earlier than everybody else, and you tuck it in after everybody else, and don't say no. So when the boss says it's New Year's Eve, anybody want to work? Me. If it's a holiday, who? Me. And if it's a worst snowstorm in the history of O'Hare Airport, you're the guy trying snow, passing up large stacks of $100 bills to try to find where your stuff is that needs to be in L.A. You don't say no. You say yes. And, yeah, you get it. There are a lot of wolves in there. And, you know, let's figure out how not to get eaten by these people. I think I've answered your question at too much length. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you're exactly right. You have to be able to think, to research. I do a lot of that. I've often said anybody who listens to this podcast with any regularity at all, and apparently there are a lot of you, will hear me say that the Internet is mine. God created it for me. It's all mine. I share it with you all, but it's mine. I am on it all of the time. And because I'm a logical, linear thinker, I'm able to discard a lot of the crap that I read. But even the most garbage comes across my keyboard or comes across my monitor will have me thinking, hmm, now where can I go with that? Where can I find more information? How, this is baloney, but maybe there's a little nugget in there. You have to always be thinking and reading and speaking with other people. You can't just, you know, sit back and go, well, you know, somebody will teach me how to be a leader. No. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. Again, your, your listeners may uh, uh, have heard this before just last half an hour. You and I have talked about this before. A question you, you've asked me is, what do you mean you'll talk to anybody who will talk to you? Well, you know, uh, people, you, me, everybody else, people listen to this. We're made up of a lot of things. We're some of a lot of things, to be sure, for some of our life experiences. And some of those, for, we all have them, and some are really relevant to us and perhaps no one else. That said, I will talk to anybody who's going to talk to me uh, because I can learn from everyone, unless they're pathological or just clinically insane. Uh, you know, I think, and, and parenthetically this, my wife is used to losing me in restaurants, events, crowds, where she, we're done, we're leaving, and then she has to wait 45 minutes for me to emerge Why? I start chatting with somebody. And as you know, I can chat, chat, and chat. But I can learn from a Nobel Prize winner, much the same I can learn from a young man who just parked my car, or from the man or woman I'm sitting next to on an airplane, because they have things in their lives, experience things. They are made up of something, the thing that's beyond DNA, that I can just learn from. What I do with it, and well, I'm the repository of all kinds of useless knowledge, is that the point? The point is, Something that, again, you and I talked about. Why stay on the phone 
for two hours or three hours with anybody. Well, first of all, it is fun. It's just playing unadulterated it's fun. On the other hand, how is your brain much different than your bicep? The more you stuff in it, the more supple it gets, the more output you can create. You know, and, and, and how, how focused am I on being able to learn from anybody? Uh, regrettably, less and less so from my so-called friends. You know, I really need a story to you. I got on the plane uh, on the business trip to Paris. Well, I ended up in Istanbul. Why? Because the man I was sitting next to was a premier expert in the world of reproduction trends in Africa. Worked for the UN and had a consulting practice. Now, does that knowledge improve your life, Denise, or mine? No, but to be in presence of greatness and the guy or the woman that knows that, well, that was worth the extra $1,800 for a round-trip ticket from Paris to Istanbul and back. And when I responded to my, my wife saying, aren't you a little late? I was headed to Vienna. And I said, yeah, well, I'm in Istanbul. And uh, I just had to sit, or, sit on the plane, talk to this guy next to me, and I'll reach out to you in about five hours. I'll be in Vienna. She said, okay, honey, travel safe. I love you. Bottom line is knowledge is just it's, it's one of the interesting pillars of life. I think that you need to understand that knowledge is everywhere. Uh, you can learn, and this is one of my philosophies in life, also on my teleprompter, you know. Seek knowledge and wisdom all the time, everywhere, and from everyone. You know, uh, knowledge is ubiquitous. It's endless. I mean, it would require lifetimes. Just put a dent into gathering any of that. So 100% of, nearly 100% of knowledge is not accessible to me and you and so on. We have this massive library in the sky called Google. Hell, if I want to know about mating habits of wallabies in April, no sweat. You want to know more about me or about you, just tap away a couple minutes. And what I taught my children and every person, young person's ever worked with me and for me is that you always have to ask the next question and the next. Uh, you, know, you have all to be you have to be constantly seeking new information, even in your sleep. I don't know about you, Stephen. I don't rest well. You know, I'm not a sleeper. I've never have been. I catnap two or three hours. Anything beyond that, I'm probably sick and need to go to the hospital. I just don't sleep all night. <laughs> but I have what I can only term lucid dreams. And I remember most of them because I'm up and down all night long. I don't just lay down and, you know, check out. And I learn, believe it or not, this is going to sound a little woo-woo, but I meet up with people and creatures and, I don't know, ideas in my sleep that have me waking up and going, oh, my God, where's my pen? Do you do that? Uh, the, the, the reality is that a lot of things wake me up at 2 in the morning and 1 in the morning and 4 in the morning. I'm, always, I'm out of bed at 3.30 in the morning because there's too much stuff that I got to write down. Most mm -hmm. of it is relevant, of course, everybody but me. But, you know, it's something to said about going to bed and going to sleep at night. One of the things that I absolutely live by, and this is inviolate, I've been doing this for many, many years, it works for me. I think that if the end of any given day, and you need to trust that I actually do this, the end of any given day before my head, my head hits the pillow, 
if I can't identify two things I learned that day, now it, has, it, it can't just be some things that became clear to me for the first time. You know, even if it's, they're just new to me, you know, you know how it goes. To a newborn, every joke is new. But they may be known to a billion other people. If I can't put my finger on two things that are new to me or just crystallize for me, I just wasted the only commodity that's too reperishable time. And as you say, I hit my, my pillow, when I, my pillow hits, my head hits the pillow. Sometime in there, I reflect on my day from that perspective only. And I do stop in the middle of my day and say, ah, I never knew that. Well, that is cool. Well, whoa, Krieg life just one up, one up in my head. Now you talk about what happens to you. You talk about what happens here at 2 and 3 in the morning. I also tell folks that, you know, it's that 2 or 3 in the morning when you wake up, your eyes are wide open, it's dark. And those are often the only moments in your day when you're truly honest with yourself. It's just that moment of clarity that's hard to come by when you're being bombarded with this, that, the other. At 2.30 in the morning, most people have exactly two thoughts. Oh, heck, it's too early. Go back to sleep. Oh, well, you know, I might as well go to the bathroom. But I think that at 2.30 in the morning when you awake and it's dark, you have your eyes open, it's when you have these remarkable moments of clarity. And things, things are different uh, when you have those moments of clarity and honesty with yourself. And that's a fast thing to do, being finally honest with yourself. I'm, it is. It very much is. I have... For many, many years now, when I can finally think, oh, I'm going to go to sleep, because it's work. I have to really kind of work at it, or all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to sleep now. And I will take a time, take the time, say my quick prayers, and I will also turn over whatever was bothering me. Maybe it was a piece of un an unanswered question or something that's just been kind of nitpicking at the back of my brain, and I will turn that over to my subconscious for review deliberately. And at 3.18 every morning, and I've had people call me at 3.18 to see if I'm really awake. I'm awake because that answer will pop into my head, and and off I go. I may go back to sleep. I may not. I've been known to get up and vacuum or make a gumbo. You know, sleep is not incredibly <laughs> important to me. But uh, what is it about 318? I don't know. I just asked I've a physician a friend of mine, why did I wake up at 318 in the morning? And he told me to get a life. <laughs> well, he's wrong. <laughs> I'm telling you. Listen, we are, we've only got a minute. Can you? I'm going to have to get you to come back at some point. And you know I'm asking you that on the on the radio, so you can't tell me no. <laughs> It'd be my pleasure, I promise. Thank you. Listen, tell people where they can find you. And before I let you go, Stephen, is there anything that you want that I might have missed or we just didn't cover that you think is really important for our audience to know? I think that is important for people to establish for themselves their main philosophies of life. What is it? What is it that drives you or should drive you? Should drive you is just as important. And also, people need to, to reflect, in my humble opinion, on those things that they learned in life that are most important in their lives. I think that's a very critical thing to do. Uh, yep. Just that, that major piece of honesty. Last but not least, of course, they should read my book. 
uh, my book is Beam Scores and Patients of Virtue. You can find it on Amazon and everywhere else. In fact, the second version of this book just came out last week. And it's, uh, I am grateful that you are reading my book. I'm grateful that everyone reads my book. I think it's equal parts entertaining, equal parts challenging, some parts a little bit of te- a few tears, uh, hoping to get make some people angry, uh, challenging. That's that's my book, and of course all the all the blog pieces you referenced. I think those are uh, more very topical, social, political, economics, and then a great story about people like you and Jim Tunney. And that's at stephenjmanning.com. J is in initial. That's a website for the book and the blog. And that's, that is what I would love to share in the, in the one hour that we have. Thank you. Listen, Stephen, it's been wonderful speaking with you. It always is. And I thank you for all the seriously fantastic stories and, you know, your life stories and how you started not speaking English in a country that you had never been to and where you are now. And I love your writing. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience, be sure to look for us on iTunes, Audible. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. Just look for us and take us along on your success journey. Stephen, thank you so much. It was entirely my treasure, I promise. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.